after Mr. Herbert Armstrong died in 1986 and a new administration took over, I was a college student at Ambassador College during that time. And several years later, I think it was at the feast, there was a theme, a sort of slogan, We Are Family. We Are Family. Again, I think during the Feast of Tabernacles. And, of course, it was an effort to show that no matter where you go in the church, that we're connected, we're one body. As time progressed, however, it was nothing short of ironic that in spite of that slogan, the administration was tearing down the actual idea that God is building a family in favor of accepting the Trinity. Because, of course, the Trinity doctrine says that you have God and Christ and the Holy Spirit, and that's it. The saints will never be on the same plane as God. And they will somehow be lesser beings, sort of like angels. And, of course, that isn't true at all. But the contradiction was striking. On the one hand, the slogan, we are family, And on the other hand, throwing away the very idea that God is building a family, and that's where families come from. And that's what joins us together as a family in the church. I'd like to talk about that today and hopefully show the importance of the biblical teaching about our future in God's family. Our future In God's family. We have a future with God in his family. And God wants us to understand that and and see how how key that is and key into it. And, of course, seek for it. By the way, we have many messages about this, including a sermon given by Dr. Meredith back in 2010 entitled, God is Building a Family. So, I wanted that title for this message. Unfortunately, it was taken already. So our title is Our Future in God's Family. But you can watch Dr. Meredith's sermon as well. Let's start over in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. Ephesians chapter 3. And verse 14. To introduce this, this topic, what we're talking about today. Breaks into a thought, but I just want to read here in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Paul speaks of the family in heaven and earth. And as we're going to see, hopefully a little bit later, it's not speaking of the angels, even though They are sometimes referred to as sons of God in the Bible. They are created beings, so in that sense they are sons of God. But they will never be in the family of God in the way that we have the opportunity to be. Now you might say, well, this is so obvious. What's the big deal? Especially if you've heard this all your life. Maybe some of you who have grown up in the church... You've heard about being in God's family. You've heard about God is reproducing himself. So what's the big deal? Well, it's a big deal because it forms the absolute core of our destiny. 
it forms the meaning of life as, as it's brought out in our booklet. What is the meaning of life? Used to be our ultimate destiny. That was the old title. We changed it to what is the meaning of life? Dr. Meredith writes in the booklet, in the transcendent spiritual love that motivates our Father and our Lord, Elohim, the God family, they have chosen to reproduce themselves by placing within surrendered Christians their very own divine nature. Then God nurtures these begotten sons through his, this physical life of overcoming until they, like Christ, the firstborn from the dead, are also literally born of God as sons of the resurrection. So the fact that we have a future in God's family is the reason we draw breath every day. It's the reason we're alive. It's why we're here. It's what we're doing. It's our potential. It's every single human being's potential on this earth, future or past. Okay, so some may say still. I've heard this over and over. I get it, but why do I need to hear it again? Well, let me take it from another angle. God's future family is, is also deeply connected to the fact that we have on earth our physical families. The human family was instituted by God. We understand that as a means through which God is building and going to build his family. So how many of us came from human families? I'm going to go out on a limb here and don't raise your hand. But I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that most of us came from a biological mother and biological father. Would you say that's true? Okay, I think so. Now, all joking aside, obviously there are some times when through various factors we haven't been raised by our biological father or biological mother. And that's the world we live in. That's one of the tragedies of this world today, Satan's world. But the fact that you were born into this world as a human being means you have the potential to be in God's family forever. means you were made in the image of God, no matter what your family situation was in this life. God loves you. He cares for you no matter what happens in this life. And he wants you there because he is reproducing himself. God is reproducing himself. The process started when our father and our mother reproduced themselves in us, but it's leading somewhere. It's not just perpetuating the species. It's not just repopulating the earth. There's a purpose. There's a reason. Let me take another angle. Is this topic of God's family a big deal? Well, it is to Satan the devil meaning he hates it. He hates it. And he'll do everything he can to sabotage the family that God is building. And let's just take a few moments to think about some of the things that he is doing to try to destroy the family. You know, sometimes we can grow an appreciation of something we have when we understand that there's an enemy trying to snatch it away. And brethren, there is an enemy trying to destroy the family, trying to snatch away that institution that God 
built, does he know something about its importance? Let's look at a few examples. See, it's not just radicals and leftists and and, uh, politicians and activists. They are tools, but there's really someone behind it. A few examples. Consider abortion. Consider abortion. That might be the most blatant, violent way that Satan is trying to destroy the family. Sixty million babies in the U.S. destroyed alone since 1973. But did you know that 40 to 50 million abortions are performed per year around the world, according to the World Health Organization? That's a war on the family, wouldn't you say? That's a war on future God beings made in the image of God through God's vehicle for reproducing himself, and that's the physical human family. And Satan has convinced mothers and fathers that they have to destroy their offspring. What about homosexuality? From the beginning, God created male and female with very specific functions, and I won't go into them in detail here. But they were intricately designed to come together in partnership and create a new living being. Now, they don't do the creating themselves. God created the mechanism so that they can perpetuate the life they've been given. But a new life is is created, is built through the life that, that a father and mother were given. And men and men can't do that. Women and women can't do that. So homosexually... So homosexuality itself flies in the face of God's purpose of creating more potential God beings. What about the transgender movement? Again, a man who tries to change to be a woman, he's not really a woman. He might have surgery. He might have puberty-blocking drugs, but he's not a woman. He's still a man, and the only way to have children is to have a biological man and a biological woman. And Satan is causing confusion in that, and it strikes at the very purpose of the family to reproduce, ultimately, God beings in the image of God. What about immorality in general? Is that a tactic of war against the family. Well, Satan the devil has convinced our culture you should live with someone before you marry them because you've got to go for a test drive to see if you're compatible. And yet, in actual fact, that is the worst decision to build a close, committed, faithful relationship in the long term, isn't it? That's what God knows. Only by saving oneself for a committed, faithful marriage relationship can Can we attain the closeness and the real intimacy that that everyone wants and the sense of belonging? It's a tool, immorality, that Satan used to tear down the family. I understand what what we're talking about is is a battlefield. And the institution, if we can uh, use it, Illustrated this way, the institution of the family is on that battlefield, and the forces of Satan the devil are on the battlefield as well. But if we look at our culture today, would you not say that 
it's as if the family is in the middle of the field and is surrounded by the forces of evil, is being shelled endlessly, is being bombed from the air, their supplies are running low, they're falling back, they're losing troops. If you just look at the world, the trends are all going in the wrong direction. In terms of even the family as an institution surviving. Here's another front. The roles of men, the roles of women. You know, the roles of men as leaders, as husbands, as fathers has been ridiculed, has been derided to the point that some think all men are predators. On the other side of the coin, the traditional role of the woman has taken a hit. It's not cool to just be a homemaker anymore. It's a waste of your potential, some will say. You don't want to be stuck at home with children of all things, with future God beings. Why would you waste your time and your potential raising future God beings? There's so much more important things that you could do out there. Satan has mixed up the roles. What about divorce? Today, about half of all marriages end in divorce. It's fairly normal in our Western society. Not a big deal at all. In fact, expected by many that you're going to experience divorce. In fact, that's one reason fewer and fewer people even get married, because they've seen these, the terrible effects of divorce, and they don't want it. And now we have schools where teachers are pro-LGBTQ, telling children, don't tell your parents when we talk about these things. Don't tell your parents when we hand out a survey where it asks you questions that are really leading questions about sort of nudging children into questioning their sexuality. Of course, it's infuriated many parents in this country. Understandably so. But that's the trend. That's the course. That's the direction. And Satan's fingerprint is all over it. Now, I've just named about eight different ways that the family is under attack. These just are off the top of the head, aren't they? How many other ways? So when we think about it, if Satan the devil is seeking with so much focus and attention to destroy the institution of the family, shouldn't that give us a clue of how important it is and how important it is to God because Satan is is ultimately the enemy of God and the enemy of the plan of God. It's interesting, you know, when we are just living our lives, when we are just, if we're married, functioning in the, the normal roles of, I, I use normal in the biblical sense, okay? The normal roles of male and female, we are actually pushing back against this attack from Satan the devil. When we are actually functioning in a family with parents and children and fulfilling our roles as mothers and fathers, we are pushing back against that enemy, And we are a part of the solution that God has and ultimately the future, our future in his family. Just by living our lives. 
quietly, faithfully, sincerely, we're showing God that we're on his team. We don't need to carry placards. We don't need to be in in protests. We're just living God's way and helping others to do so as well. So let's talk about some specific and practical applications of this topic, our future in God's family. We'll talk about two two specific ways here in the time remaining. What is our part? What can we do to show that God that we're on his team and make sure that ultimately we are a part of his family, that family that's going to last forever? We'll break it down into two items. Number one. Number one, let's build and support our physical family. Let's build and support our physical family. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, God is in favor of marriage, in favor of children. He created that process. He's not ashamed of it. Uh, He actually designed it, and it's a part of his plan. But notice in Ezekiel chapter 16 we find a really interesting passage, I think, that is helpful for, for anyone who is a parent and to give the right perspective of what it is to have children. Uh, <clears throat> breaking into the thought here, he's talking about some of the sins of Israel, but it gives us a little bit of a, an idea of how he looks at children. Uh, uh, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 20, it says, Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters, whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter, that you have slain my children and offered them up to be ca- to, by causing them to pass through the fire? Wow, what a change in perspective. You know, in this world, it's my body, my business, and get out of my business. God says that our children are his. They belong to him. And he wants children. He says, those children that you have born to me. So what does that mean? We need to look to God for instruction about how we raise our children. We have a number of uh, tools that can be helpful. Number one is uh, our booklet, Successful Parenting God's Way. Very helpful. Very helpful booklet. If you have children or you're planning on having children or just if you're interested in the topic, please read that booklet. There's helpful and practical advice on every page. Also, we have a DVD, Raising Good Kids in a Bad World. God created the family. He created the process through which we have children. And he has some powerful things to say to us about our families. Notice in Ephesians chapter 1. Let's look at a few of the things that we can learn about building and supporting our family. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1. Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, 
that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So any children in the room, listen up. Okay, this is for you. There is a commandment right out of the Ten Commandments that is just for you. It's how you can have a happy life, how you can have a good life, a blessed life, and it all starts with honoring your parents. So what does that mean? You know, Mr. Ames used to say, I remember in a number of sermons years ago, that children, you can help your parents. If you find your parents are being cranky all the time, there are things you can do to help them get out of that attitude. Like, you need a plan of action, young people, right? You need to do some things. Like here, make your bed. Uh, clean your room. Eat your vegetables without being told to. Volunteer to take out the garbage. Say thank you. Say I'm sorry. Say please. And you'll see a remarkable transformation in your parents. They won't know what to think. And the crankiness just fades. I remember one of our children was recently saying, you know, I can remember thinking years ago, mother and dad don't have much of a sense of humor. And uh, But you, you guys have gotten kind of loosened up over time. You know, kids, I think you can help your parents have more of a sense of humor by doing some of the things that I just listed. The point is, there are things to do. Notice in verse, verse 4, And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. You know, brethren, this can be easily misunderstood as if we don't correct our children. When, when children are misbehaving, they, they need to be corrected. They need to be directed. And they're not going to like it. They're not going to like it. None of us like it. And so we can feel that, well, I don't want to provoke them to wrath, and they're not going to like it if I correct them, so I'll just let it go. Well, that's not what that verse means. Sometimes we do have to be the drill sergeant, Sometimes we do need to get their attention so they learn to mind. But what he's saying is it all has to be done in the context of love, in the context of comforting them, in the context of reassuring them that they're important to us, and helping them when they're scared or sad or confused. The other thing is we have to teach them how to even honor their parents you ever thought about that? You know, as parents, um, children don't follow this command by instinct. They have to be taught, and it has to be explained, and it has to be shown. And yet it feels a little odd to say, Johnny, say, I'm sorry, Daddy. Sorry for all the Johnnies here. I don't mean anything to. Uh, but I'm sorry, Daddy. And Johnny says, I'm sorry, and, okay, I forgive you. It feels a little scripted, you know, like it just feels unnatural. And yet that is how we set the pattern. That is how we show them what to do when they do something wrong. We model it. Let's no- notice something else. The instruction about children is actually in the context of marriage. Back up to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. 
It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. We'll stop there just for a moment. We'll come back to see the rest later, hopefully. Uh, but this seems a little archaic as well in our day today, doesn't it? That God designed the marriage relationship to work best when the wife takes a supporting role. Again, that's not what this world says, but that's what God says. Notice, too, that this is not husbands command your wives to submit. Husbands browbeat your wives to submit. It doesn't say that. It says wives submit to your husbands. In other words, as a wife, ask God for help. Ask God to show you how you can support the head of your home. How you can respect that man that you have put your life in his hands. Looking past his mistakes, looking past his foibles. And certainly if he's doing something to harm you or harm your children, that's a totally different matter. That you need help if that is happening. It shouldn't be overlooked. But in most of our interactions, it's, it's just about interpersonal relations and God will help us if we seek it out. Ephesians 5 and verse 25, notice the other side of the coin. Husbands, love your wives. Stop there again. Uh, Husbands, pray to God about asking him to show you how to love your wives better. I've told this story before. My wife and I were in a marriage counseling situation, and uh, during that situation I, I told the husband, How difficult is it just to tell your wife you love her every day? Because that was an issue that they were dealing with. How difficult is it? Just every day. Just make a note to yourself. Put it on a sticky note. Put it in your schedule. Tell her you love her every day. And um, afterwards, my wife and I got in the car, closed the door, and she turned to me and said, Yeah, how difficult is it? Checkmate. (laughs) We are all learning. (laughs) It's a learning process. And gentlemen, if we're smart, we're going to figure out how to love our wives by the clues and cues that she gives us. Some are more obvious than others. But we have to listen and respond and act on what we're hearing. Notice in verse 33. It says, nevertheless, that each one of you in particular so love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So women need love. That fills their tank. You know, men in marriage, we don't always think of the right thing to do at the right time, but it shows love to our wife if we're trying to seek to figure out what is important to her. And then we do that. And we forget, and we're reminded, and then we say we're sorry, and we try better. And you'll be amazed at how much better she'll respond to you if you make a purposeful effort to figure out what actions come across as loving to her. She may not care about chocolate and flowers. Maybe sweeping the floor is is much more important to that. Well, you know, we do what is important to her. And men need respect. That fills their tank. Ladies, you may think it's demeaning to show 
respect and deference to your husband, but remember, that's what makes him feel appreciated. Just like you need love, that's what makes him feel appreciated and and, uh, uh, respected when he is getting respect. And ask him what it means to him. When does he feel respected by you? You may be amazed at the answer. What's important to him and what's not important to him. So think about it. All of this led up to the part about children we read a minute ago. In other words, the marriage relationship comes first. If we want a well-functioning family that is preparing children to have a relationship with God, then as imperfect as it is, as much of a work in progress we are, we're going to strive to make our marriage a reflection of the family that God is building and then make our interaction with our children a reflection as well. Notice in Malachi chapter 3. Let's go over there. Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Verse 14, because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? What's the purpose of marriage? Why even get married in the first place? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. It comes back to God wants children. Just like we read in Ezekiel, they're his children, and he wants a big family. And he's in the process of having a big family. And he doesn't want just a big family. He doesn't just want lots of children who are rebellious and who are causing all kinds of problems around the universe forever. He wants children that have learned to love him and seek him and love his way. And that's a profound responsibility for us to try to set the pattern for children to get them on the right foot. Notice in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 in verse 1. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 1 says, Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 3. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. So God's way is is designed to be a connection between generations. Notice he said sons, grandsons, three generations, 
Satan is trying to divide the generations, and yet God's law and God's way connects the generations, provides for a bridge between generations. And the focus is on absolute law, absolute truths, learning to fear God, that it may be well with us. Isn't that ironic? You know, nobody wants bad fruit in their life. Nobody just sets out to say, I want really the worst kind of consequence in my life that I could possibly have. Everyone wants peace, safety, loving relationships, and happiness, but most don't want to connect the dots that living according to God's law is the way to get there. And that's what we're trying to teach them in the world. And that's what we're trying to learn as well. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Again, it's about a loving relationship and, and training our children to have a loving relationship with God, that he's not an impersonal being off somewhere. He wants a family. He wants to be close to us. Verse 6, And these words which I command you shall today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. In other words, they should be a part of your daily life. You know, I don't remember having a lot of sit-down Bible studies with our father and mother growing up. We probably did. I, I just don't remember. But what I do remember is them spending a lot of time with us. A lot of time talking about Life, about what's happening in our lives, about what's happening in our friends' lives, and, and talking about God's, God's way and where that will lead and engaging us about what was important in our life and what was important about to them and the values that they were wanting to impart and what was not important to them. You know, that was a big part of our conversations, too. What was important to them was having a heart turned to God and His way. What was not important to them was just parroting back words to please them or impress others. You know, my dad was the the minister. But I never heard him say, you better do this, otherwise you'll embarrass me. You better do this, because after all, I'm the minister. He didn't say it. He didn't imply it. It was the furthest thing from our minds. But they strove to teach us to do what's right because it's the right thing to do. Not because you're going to embarrass me. You know what that message would have sent? That it's not about God's way. It's about our impression. It's about optics. It's about how I look. And that would have been a very different value. One of the greatest blessings of my life was when God brought into my life a young woman whose family thought the same way in terms of values. And she was awfully cute, too. That helped, too. Brethren, we we must not just be about trying to get our kids to spit out information, but rather we're trying to reach their hearts. Proverbs 23, 26 says, My son, give me your heart. 
and let your eyes observe my ways. That means we have to engage with them. That means we have to know where they are, know where their head is. That means we have to sacrifice some of our things, some of our time, in order to take the time when it's hard to reach them, maybe. And it takes consistent effort and focus and communication and listening and listening with our ears and also listening with our discernment. What's really going on? And what do we need to focus on? Our goal is to pass on our values and get to them to identify with what is important in our life. You know, I think we think of the socialization of children, and a lot of times it's in the context of learning how to relate to other children. I would submit to you that real socialization, meaning learning how to function, learning how to be responsible, learning how to care for others, how to share, how to be courteous, how to communicate, it all starts at home. That's where it begins. That's where it happens. The dinner table. Ideal place for it. There have been all all kinds of studies about how important it is to have regular meals together for children and how it can help families. Is our dinner table at our home a place to build the next generation or is it just a place to get food down as quickly as possible, like the Jetsons? Some of you... People, young people may never have seen the Jetsons. <clears throat> That's a different story. We may not always have the opportunity to eat together in, in every situation, especially as children grow, our schedules change, etc. It's not always ideal. But the point is, let's look at the long term. Let's think about what we're doing. And let's think about how we're building our families. We might even be struggling with our family situations. We need to ask God for help, for guidance, for direction. Show us what to do to make it more a reflection of what, what He wants. Because He is building a family. You know, this also means that we must be heavily involved in their education. Brethren, we cannot take it for granted that when we send our children off to school, they're going to come back to us in the same condition we sent them. Mr. Weston addressed this in a a sermon a few months ago. The trend in our Western world today is schools with an agenda to turn children away from the value of their parents. That's the way it's going. This is not new. This was back in the 1980s in colleges. It's just that it's been reverting to an earlier age as each decade goes by. And yet, in Deuteronomy 6, we saw it's our responsibility to teach our children. If you're a parent, you have the capacity to take charge of their education. You can do it. And you must do it. It takes time, it takes effort, it takes sacrifice, might take juggling of priorities, But what is more important than making sure that you are the primary influence of that future God being in their life right now? What could be more important, I ask you? 
You know, we can't cede control to a system that is out to divide us from our children. And God will help us no matter what situation we're in if we cry out to him for help to make whatever wise decisions we need to make based on our situation. But the point is God is building a family and we can be a part of that family and it starts with our physical families. They are important. And it leads us to the second part. What if we don't have children? What if we're not married? What if we don't fit that demographic? What if we don't have that role? What part do we have in God building his family? Let's, let's look at a second point as we break it down. Number two, we must build and support our spiritual family. We must build and support our spiritual family. Let's go back to Ephesians where we were a moment ago. And let's pick up a a couple of things that we skipped over. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ... So let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So it's expanded. What we find here is that it's not just about physical relationships. It's about the church. It's about the spiritual family that God is building. There's a higher spiritual reality. Ephesians 5 verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So why should husbands love their wives? Because Christ loves the church. It's It's a mirror. It's an imperfect reflection of the spiritual family that God is building. The spiritual family is the perfect uh, reality. Our families are, are yet in progress, aren't they? And yet they're supposed to ultimately reflect that. So we find this powerful concept that everything we've been talking about up to now in the physical, the the, the goal is that ultimately we reflect the spiritual family. And God is building a spiritual family. Notice Ephesians 5.31. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And truly the, the source of family, the source of marriage, the reason for it is a mystery to the world. They just think it's uh, some man-made construct, an evolutionary concept maybe. Maybe just sort of a a thing that that human beings figured this would be a good way to to, uh, organize their, their, their communities. No. It was built by God, the physical family, ultimately to point to the spiritual family. John chapter 14 and verse... 15, notice, 
John chapter 14 and verse 15. You know, in our physical families, we have shared DNA, don't we? We look alike. Maybe our eye color is similar. Maybe we sound the same. Maybe certain expressions or a walk or even certain personality uh, types are similar. But brethren, what is the shared DNA, if we can use that term loosely, when we talk about the spiritual family? Well, John 14 and verse 15 says, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. When we come to services, we are coming to see our family. And that family connection is much more real than any physical DNA that we share with our brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and children. That DNA is the Holy Spirit. So you and I are related more closely by the Holy Spirit than we are with our blood relatives because that Spirit is going to last forever. That Spirit is a more fundamental element of the whole universe than any DNA DNA strands could possibly be. That's the family that God wants us to be a part of. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 5, or 13, actually. Romans chapter 8 and verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if... By the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Romans chapter eight fifteen. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, or really sonship. Sonship is much more applicable here because God is not just adopting us. He's actually begetting us, and we're going to be born. We are going to be like Him. We're going to have a part of Him. We already have a part of Him if we're baptized and receive the Spirit. The Spirit of uh, of sonship by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So, brethren, why do we get baptized? To be forgiven of sin, certainly to have the death penalty taken away, but also to be connected to the body through His Spirit, to be a part of His family. You ever notice you, you meet a brother or sister in the church for the first time? It doesn't take that long before you sense a connection there. It's not just being sentimental. It's not just sort of making it up like, oh, we have this certain feeling. It's real. It's real. It's the Holy Spirit. It's because we have the same Spirit. That's the family that we can be a part of, that we are a part of already being begotten. First John chapter 1. Notice First John chapter 1. And my point in saying this is that that is even a more profound relationship and a more long-lasting relationship than any physical 
family relationship we could possibly have. First John chapter 1 and verse 3. Breaking into the thought here, it says, That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Why do we even come to church, brethren? You know, if it's just absorbing information, we could do that long range. We could do that sitting in our slippers at home, watching online. And we do have people watching online. But they want to be here, and there's a reason why they can't. And so if we can be here, we need to be here because it's not just about receiving information. We're a part of a family. And it's about being connected to one another. And that means not just showing up one minute before church and leaving one minute after it's over. You know, some of us may be more shy or more timid than others, and maybe sometimes even fellowship is intimidating. But maybe we have a wrong impression of what fellowship is. It's not a performance. It's not about being the funniest person in the room. It's not about being the smartest person in the room. It's not about impressing others with how we dress or our great personality. Acts chapter 2, notice. Acts chapter 2. Why do we come together? Because we're a family. That's why we come together. And families get together. Families do things together. Families eat together. Families fellowship together. Families have activities together. And that's how they become one. That's how they have a shared heritage and shared history because they're, they're sharing their lives together. Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. Then those who were, who gladly received his word were baptized and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them and they continued steadfastly in the apostles doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Great example of how important fellowship was to the early church. It's never changed because fellowship is about sharing of ourselves, not putting on a performance. It's about seeking out those who are lonely, pulling them into the group and letting them know they're important. It's about being more than just coming to see our friends. It's not wrong to spend time with those that we're closest to, but frankly, we know them already. Let's get to know others that we don't know as well. Branch out. What is happening while we do that? Well, God is shaping us. God is molding us. God is teaching us, just like we were talking about how children are taught in a family. And he's working on our heart. And God can be using our words and our communication and our encouragement to help one another. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15. Ephesians chapter 
4 and verse 15, it says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. In other words, we are a part of a family. It doesn't matter who we are. doesn't matter if we're young or old, married or single, adult or teen. You are in the family. You belong. What a powerful and meaningful reality, brethren. We all belong. Certainly some uh, God's Spirit is working with them and not yet in them. But as they come to the point where they want God to work more directly in their life, they can be a part of things directly and and have be actually his spirit in them as well. The point is that God wants us to understand that we are a part of a family. You know, at the feast, again, the survey, we, we switched up some of the questions on the feast survey One of the things we included was uh, describe one example of service or sacrifice by brethren that inspired you. And these were really inspiring to read because you saw how so many people saw others doing things, oftentimes with that other person not even knowing, having no idea they were making an impact, and it made a difference in their life. Let me read a few of them. Here's one answer. One man rented a bus. And when I say bus, this person writes, I mean a greyhound-sized bus to help transport as many of the elderly or folks that were in need of transportation. What a, what a service. Here's another one. I was given vouchers by people I did not know to make my experience better. I was amazed. Here was another one. The willingness of members to attend their assigned site in order to serve when they could have easily transferred. You know, maybe that's maybe another important thing that we need to emphasize more. It's great to transfer. It's wonderful to meet new people, but it also is a service to a percentage of the time stay back and help and support the host fee site where we are assigned. Here's one. There were few young people at this site, but the ones I did see and notice seemed to be able to reach out to the adults that surrounded them. You know, a lot of the comments were about our young people. It's encouraging to see how many of them are applying the things that they are, they're hearing. Here's another one. A little girl about six years old, I think, gave my sister a toy. She loved it. And the last one person who served or sacrificed, the person that brought me here. They couldn't go to the feast on their own. And it meant so much that someone was willing to take them. Brethren, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have the same spiritual DNA. Do you think someday when we are made fully spiritual in the kingdom... And some have had children in this life and some did not. Do you think it's going to be a big deal? Sure, it, it will be nice to have those who are related to us and, and have, see them in the kingdom. 
And there may be a special closeness there, I suppose. But I really don't think those who don't have children will be thinking, wow, if only I could have had children in this life. Because, brethren, we're going to be related so much more closely to each other at that time. In so much more of a meaningful way, at a profound level, than anything we could ever experience with physical relatives. It won't even be an issue. God is in the process of bringing many sons to glory. And maybe the reason why, going full circle, we started off with some of the ways that Satan the devil is attacking the family, Maybe the reason why he is attacking the family so much is that he knows that the human beings are going to be on a level higher than the angels. That we are going to be a part of the God family which the angels will never attain. And they weren't built for that. They weren't made for that. They were made to be ministering spirits. And yet somewhere along the line... That really angered him, and he got jealous and envious. And he turned this world into what it is because he wasn't happy with his state and he wasn't happy with our destiny. Dr. Meredith wrote before he died back in January, February 2017, an article, We Must Become Family in Living Church News. He said, God's people will be tried and tested as we have never been before. Speaking of the future, speaking of our need to be a part of the church and be a part of what is happening here in much more than a superficial way. He said, we'll be persecuted as never before in the years ahead, as God's word clearly, God's word clearly predicts. Satan will try to divide and conquer as is his usual tactic. He will not only try to divide different nations and ethnic groups, but he will surely go after Christ's true church and try to confuse, undermine, and divide us in any way he can. Yet in the terrible times just ahead, we will all need the love and support of one another more than ever. We'll need to become family more than ever, and I hope that all of us can fully realize that and pray that God can help us respond and become a true family under the leadership of Jesus Christ, God is reproducing himself and enlarging his family to ultimately include billions of human beings made in his image. We're not here just to go through the motions. We're not here just to tread water. And even if we don't have a husband or wife or children, we are a part of the building that God is building, that spiritual family. And that connection is so much bigger and wider and deeper than any physical relation. It's a big deal. Let's turn over in conclusion to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. You know, the challenge for us is to stay focused as we're living in the time of the end. 
and the heat is on and the trials come and Satan the devil is trying to destroy the family and he's trying to destroy us and he's trying to destroy our families because we have a bigger target than the world, don't we? Because we know where we're going. We know who we are. We know what our destiny is. So it's even more important for us to strive to build our physical families and our spiritual family. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse verse 8. He says, after talking about the destiny of man and our future, that there will be nothing that isn't put under us, he says. Verse 8, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Our older brother is not ashamed to call us brethren. In spite of the mistakes, in spite of the mess-ups, in spite of the foibles, in spite of the problems, he's not ashamed of us. You know, sometimes in our human families, we don't attain to perfection, do we? Sometimes we mess up. We're trying. We're struggling. But we don't reach perfection. And yet, how important is it that we're going to be able to look our elder brother in the eye and know that he is not ashamed of us? And our Father, and know that they are not ashamed of us. They want us to be in their family. And that day is coming. Let's understand our part, where we fit in, in the physical families we're in, building those families, but even more importantly, the spiritual family that God is building Let's work where we are. Let's support our family and build it where we can. And let's get ready to be in God's family forever. Brethren, let's understand our future in God's family.